0: The funny thing about gluten free bread <laughs> that I laugh at all the time is like, why are you so tiny? <laughs> it's-
1: I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm
2: to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Farm to Future. Back on my feet after a couple weeks of battling COVID, as many of you are as well, sending you tons of good vibes for health and healing. Now, imagine that joy you get from slurping a bowl of ramen or digging into a fresh taco. Imagine that going away. And for some of us, that's not too far away to imagine. Some of you who've gotten COVID have lost your sense of taste and smell, hopefully not permanently. And as an aside, I learned from TikTok that if you roast an orange and eat that, that can bring back your taste. This is untested, so if you do try it, let me know how it goes. Anyway, that experience of losing your sense of taste is precisely what happened to today's guest. Michelle Nicole Gerard. grew up understanding the land like the back of her hand. As a kid, she regularly watched her grandmother make magic in the kitchen and garden. As an adult, Michelle has spent years working professionally as a baker and as a home chef with families dealing with allergies. A few years ago, Michelle herself got very sick And she became allergic to almost all foods. She spent months just curled up in bed away from the kitchen. But the one thing to know about Michelle is she is just this beacon of warmth and light. And one way she expresses love is through cooking. And it was through this desire to nourish people again that Michelle found her way back to the kitchen. And so she documented this journey in a cookbook that she just published called Olfactory, And let me tell you, this book is a work of art. Michelle is not only an incredible chef, but also a gifted writer and poet. In Olfactory, you'll find Michelle's most beloved recipes. And lastly, friends, some exciting news. Michelle is kindly gifting us a copy of Olfactory, we're doing a giveaway for the next two weeks on Instagram. All you have to do to enter is share with us one aroma that fills you with memory and joy. Share that as a comment on my giveaway post, and make sure you're following Farm to Future and Michelle Nicole Gerard on Instagram. To get you inspired, here is Michelle.
0: When you grow up with land, it's like what you know no different than someone in the city who like knows the city by heart. And they know every gallery and every alley. And I feel like growing up on land is very similar. I really got to know the seasons, what they produced, what they gave, as well as like the variety of different plants. So my family is Mexican heritage. And so we had a lot of chilies, a lot of very specific Mexican herbs and greens. Then this little piece of Italy, because my grandmother's first husband was Italian. There was this whole relationship with just food and knowing that it went in cycles. I knew that pomegranates were meant to be eaten in fall and like winter. And I thought it was like strange mm-hmm. in grocery stores in the middle of January. I'd be like, where is this watermelon coming from? Right. <laughs> right. And my grandmother was just like an incredible gardener. Like she was so connected and it seemed really effortless. And so I feel like I got a little bit of that from her where like, We're definitely not perfect or like precious with what we do. We kind of really trust what will grow and we trust in the way at which it will grow. When I see farms that are like perfectly lined up, I get it because they're trying to produce for like so many people. Yeah. Right. And so it has to be organized. But when you are growing for like a family and you're like experimenting, you have that gift to be able to play I'm looking at my amaranth right now out the window because it's such a testament to that. It's like so wily. <laughs> um, <laughs> like if it chooses to like fall and like grow in different ways, like allowing it to do that. And then like, I know next year, because I've let this happen, that different volunteer plants are going to pop up kind of everywhere. Mm. I love each season being surprised by what seeded itself. I think that's the gift of growing food is that like you have these tools and these mediums to create in the kitchen and then to nourish people. It's like all kind of going hand in hand because I can't imagine being in the kitchen and not knowing where my food comes from. The way I cook, I like it to be enveloped in like story. So knowing my farmers that I work with, like farmers that are much more talented than me. (laughs) Um, And then also having like the little things from my own garden. I really love growing medicinal herbs. I love growing like edible flowers, basic greens like collards and shard, but like obviously I'm not a full-fledged farmer and so I have those people in my life that I learn from and when I bring their food into my kitchen, their story becomes part of mine and then it's like this really beautiful woven quilt of like everyone coming together in like one dish. Oh, it's
1: like a village in a dish. So cute. <laughs> um, edible flowers. How do you know which species mm-hmm. are edible?
0: I have a beautiful book. I'm not like perfect in it, but I know the basics. Like most pansies are edible, and I love them on cupcakes. Things like lavender, chamomile, feverfew is edible, but it's bitter. Like mm. I, I've used it on cupcakes before, and I've told people like you might want to remove that pretty little daisy before you <laughs> bite into the cupcake, right? Just <laughs> for show. <laughs> Just for show, like it's such a like potent medicine, but it's not as tasty as it is beautiful. Whereas chamomile obviously has that very delicate flavor that's so mm. gorgeous. Calendula, I use a lot in decoration. Roses are probably one of my favorites to decorate with. There's an insane amount of edible flowers, but it is obviously be careful read you can die from plants (laughs) yes (laughs) don't go eating flowers like you don't know there are so many like even something as simple as like mustard flowers like in the spring and summer like especially in Ojai we get mustards when we have rain rain for rain but when we have rain they grow like higher than your head. Like they're so tall. Just being able to walk through the fields and like pick the mustard flowers and then a little thing that I love to do that I feel like some people don't know is like rosemary flowers, basil flowers, Hmm. all the herbs, tarragon, like they all flower, Right, oregano flowers. And the flowers have even more potent but delicate flavor than the actual herb itself. And rosemary flowers are that beautiful like dusky purple. They're almost like a periwinkle color. And so they are incredible to use like when you cook, when you bake. I make a rosemary chocolate chip cookie and I usually top it with all the little purple
1: flowers.
0: (gasps) And when you trim basil, because obviously when it flowers, then you have to trim it if you want it to continue getting bigger. So it doesn't just go to seed. And instead of throwing those flowers away, just using them because they're so filled with flavor and they're beautiful. So all herbs pretty much flower and you can eat them. Wow.
1: That's incredible. (laughs) There's so much to learn in the plant world. I am lucky to be alive because in elementary school, I would climb this tree in the schoolyard. I mean, they probably thought about this before planting the tree, but I would climb these trees (laughs) and they had these little delicate white flowers that I later found out was honeysuckle. My friends and I just thought like, oh, let's try them. And we tried them and we just got in a habit of like every day after school, we would climb these trees and eat the flowers. And it was a great little snack. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The
0: honeysuckle is so special. Yeah.
1: Really sweet. They're beautiful.
0: It's one of the ones I look forward to. How long have you been in Ojai? I have been in Ojai for almost four years now, but I grew up coming here, so it's definitely a land that I've come back to a lot throughout my life.
1: Mm, It's north
0: of LA, just south of Santa Barbara. I think we only have like 8,000 people, 7,800. It's a small town. Mm. You're in like this little valley filled with like orange groves. It's definitely agricultural land. We do struggle with water, (laughs) which
1: California is
0: difficult, but it's still like a very beautiful land has oak trees a lot of oak trees Mm. old old oaks it's really special
1: tell us about how you got into the culinary world because you were doing like vegan and gluten-free baking and cooking way before it was cool
0: (laughs) (laughs) i grew up vegan and vegetarian my whole life pretty much from like four years old onwards as a child it wasn't always my choice but Mm. i was very much supported by my family and it was when i was like 15 that i really went like all dedicated like this is what I want to do this is like the life I want to lead I'm really passionate about it and then I got sick when I was 18 when I was in Mm -hmm. England in school and that's what actually led me into the culinary world is I had always had eating disorders and I realized with the illness that I had that it was like very hard to differentiate the eating disorder between the illness and I really wanted to like establish a really healthy and happy and vibrant relationship with food and i was mm-hmm. like oh how can i do this and so while i was in college i also did like courses with matthew kenny and learned about raw food cuisine and that's where a lot of my courses actually are ours in raw food which is really funny because mm-hmm. i don't do that as much i love making raw food and desserts but it's not what i do as much anymore but i will say i think it really prepped me because you had to be so innovative it's like, what can we make from a walnut? Like, what are the variety <laughs> of things that we can make? It really tests the boundaries of what you can do with plants. And so it went, as I transitioned into just like vegan cooked food, I felt like I had like a really good understanding of plants and the ways in which I could utilize them in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And then when I added gluten-free baking, that was like a whole nother realm. And it was all because a really sweet, bakery in Hermosa Beach that was once Planet Earth, I think it's the source now, but when I was cooking for them, it was Planet Earth, asked for cupcakes Mm -hmm. and they were like, can you make us gluten-free vegan cupcakes? And I was like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? (laughs) I like like, like, her family, but I've never like done it professionally and I was like, okay, like I can do this. I can bring this to the next level and I started playing. And it was a lot harder then because of ingredients. When I started, when I was like about 19 years old, the flours, like the gluten-free flours were very minimal. What was available even to find like truly vegan sugar was very hard um, Hmm. because so much sugar is processed with bone char that a lot of sugar back then wasn't vegan.
1: What's bone char? so,
0: So they use like the bones of animals to process cane sugar. And so you will sometimes get like the remnants of animal product in the sugar, not a lot, but most vegans prefer to have sugar that's not processed with bone. Um, Interesting. So now Hmm. there are like multiple sugars that are in like normal stores. Even Target, I think, sells like a certified vegan sugar from Wholesome. And so now (laughs) it's like, it's so much more widely available. (laughs) Whereas when I started, I pretty much had to order everything online. I had to really find these different ingredients and like commit to them. And with the flowers, I really just started making my own flour blends with gluten-free because the ones that were on the market just were not doing what I wanted them to do. They were really Mm. dense. They were like grainy. (laughs) But now it's like, sometimes I get lazy because everything is available. And it's like, I (laughs) could make my own gluten-free blend, but like the Bob's one-to-one does really well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> does really well. I love the
1: King Arthur. It just does the job.
0: Right? It does. Like yeah. there's so much now in the market, which is incredible. And that's been the beauty of like growing in the culinary world. And I was a private chef after like, I pretty much just baked for cafes. And then I was a private chef into my twenties and cooked for a lot of families in Manhattan Beach and LA and really worked with people that were dealing with allergies or had children. That was the other thing is I cooked for a lot of families that had children that like had dairy allergies, egg allergies, gluten allergies, and they really didn't know Mm. how to cook for their kids. If you're not taught how to do that, it can feel really overwhelming. So I would go in and help them like clean out their pantry and their fridge and make sure that there was nothing in there that could like harm their their baby. And then Mm. we would just get new stuff and like I would do weekly you know, meals and sometimes the mom would like join me and that way I could show her how to actually make these yeah. meals as well so they could learn. And I think that was the most important part for me was just teaching people how to make meals that could feel good for them when they were struggling with allergies. And mm-hmm. then like on a really like selfish core vegan level of like getting the plant based meals into people's like yes. routines. <laughs> <laughs> I loved being able to do it in that way because it didn't feel forced ever. And I think that's always been really important to me as a plant based vegan chef is I never want people to feel like I'm attacking the way they eat. Like, Mm -hmm. I really do value that everyone has something that feels good for their body and good for their life. And by no means want to control that or change it. I simply just want to give them other options that they can integrate into their everyday. And I think that's how I've always approached it is like what people eat is really none of my business, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I also want to show them like the beauty and the magic of plants. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the beauty of food is like, if you make it good, no one really cares. I did pop up dinners pre-COVID all the time. and it was such an extraordinary experience because i have like hunters like at my table that were just like oh my god this is so good like if it tastes good if it feels good if there's love involved and there's care involved in it people really don't care what it is mm-hmm. right like i never used to say like vegan dinner it was just like a pop-up right. organic farm to table dinner party happened to be plants and most of them never knew like jackfruit as you probably know like full pork nobody knows right yeah (laughs) (laughs) they don't need to know
1: (laughs) as long as it tastes good no i love that approach because i feel like with sustainability there can be this kind of perfectionist or extreme mentality of like you have to be all or nothing like full-on vegan but i love how your approach is through nourishing and caring for people and it's like here like try this amazing tasty thing versus like Mm -hmm. you have to do this
0: Exactly. I think that militant nature of anything, right? Like I I was a teacher as well. And like, I think Mm -hmm. nothing when you are militant or forceful is ever going to actually land. It's about allowing people like this space where they feel safe and where they feel like they can express their questions and they can express their feelings on something and be heard and seen. that all of a sudden you can actually have a conversation that leads to change there are things that of course worry me of like the way we are impacting our environment and Mm. the decisions we're making as a collective that are just causing like a lot of destruction. And then at the same time, there's a lot of people that don't have the privilege to change certain things. And that's why I think it's so amazing to gather around a table where there's food and where the conversation can naturally start to flow based on something really simple. Like, oh my God, this is like the best arugula I've ever had. Where was it grown? Mm. All of a sudden, like the curiosity comes. And then like people remember. Mm. I have people that like were with me years ago that came to like some of my first taco pop-ups that I did, that still buy the masa that I used. That's like Mm. this heirloom masa. And it's, made by this beautiful family, all because they really liked the tortillas. <laughs> like they were like, oh my God, this is yeah. so good. And And I'm not an expert, like at all, but like that's how I choose to like, create the little changes that I feel like can be helpful in like the world mm-hmm. around me. I wish I was like Oprah. Like I wish that every day, you know, <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> I'm
0: always like, that must be so cool to like have that power to be like, by the way, everyone go get this. And like, everyone goes, and that's it. like yeah. it's such like a powerful thing to have that kind of voice.
1: And. Oh, definitely. There's a book you wrote or a novel about women cooking in Kenya. I would love if you could maybe share what you learned on that trip that you was different from kind of the Western way of cooking.
0: It was such a beautiful experience. I went with Maja Missouri, which is an all Kenyan-based NGO. It's amazing, like, when you go for one thing, like, I went to help with writing, like, to teach (laughs) writing. And I did. And it was amazing. I didn't teach anything. I was definitely taught. Like, the kids and the young adults just blew my mind with just their stories and their heart and wanting to, to tell stories. When I was there, it was such... A beautiful thing to witness. Food, I like stayed with a chicken farmer. It was such a amazing thing because like here, I feel like often with people that eat meat, there's still like a really big stigma on being vegan. I definitely like have felt it. Instagram trolls. I get sent like hunting photos from people, and they're mm. like, "Oh, I killed this today. Wish you could have it vegan." And I'm like, "Okay, delete block. Right? Like, it's wow. fine." But there's definitely like this notion and like American culture of meat is like part of us. It's like burgers and steak and potatoes. It's like, oh, if you're not eating that, like you're not American or something. Right. In Kenya, it was so interesting because there was like zero judgment, like zero. Mm. And I was like mm. with someone who literally farmed chickens and they were like, oh, like that's a great way to live. Like it's so like awesome. <laughs> and like, And this woman, she literally farmed chickens, but it was her livelihood. So her family and her only ate chicken once a week Mm. because everything Mm. else was sold. And so they reserved a certain amount so they could have a meal. And it was every Sunday where they would eat like a little bit of chicken each. But the majority of their meals day to day were made of like corn, collards, beans, and then some form of flatbread in this sense. I forget the name of it. It's not injera, but it's like injera. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and like one time they had roti like they made roti and like they kind of like go between some kind of flatbread and then Mm. the beans the rice all of that and then even snacks right like the most common snacks are like what grows there so it's fruit it's like bananas Mm. mangoes pineapples and then there's just an abundance of grains right like collards and kale like grow all over. Even people that were in, like, Mathare and the slum, like, had little things where they grew, like, kale. And when they did have animal meat in, like, a dish, right? Like, there was one point where we went to a celebration and they made goat stew. And it was this thing, because it was Mm. a celebratory occasion, and it's something they normally could never afford. It was just because people were coming and I totally pretended to eat it because I felt really bad. I didn't actually. Oh. I didn't actually eat it, I but I did
1: eat it. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> And it was oh. sweet because most people did very much understand. Because a lot, like Ethiopia, in Ethiopia, when you are plant based, you're considered to be like on the path of sainthood
1: oh, because it's, okay. a so it's a religious association.
0: It's not saying you're a saint. It's just like that you're on that religious path. That's all you saint. <laughs> like, they're like, oh, you must be part of like the religious, this kind of thing. And Got so they it. don't even blink. But the, even like the way that they treat the animal and they slaughter them, like again, it's just different. It's still slaughter. It's still very hard to witness. But there mm-hmm. is a deep reverence for that animal and every single part of that animal is used. Nothing Mm. goes to waste, nothing is taken for granted. They know that they're taking a life. It's like a very like big awareness that they're taking a life. It's something that I feel like when I look at native history and Mexican history, you all also see very prevalently, right? Like I would never tell an indigenous person that they needed to go vegan. Like never. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. I love chef Eduardo Garcia and he is definitely a hunter. He lives in like reverence of the land and yet me and him get along so well
2: because Mm -hmm.
0: I deeply value the way that he approaches what he does. There is, like, a very, very deep knowledge of knowing the sacredness of that life. Even though, like, it's not something I could do because that's not for me, it's something I can respect in the way that he does it. And in Kenya, I was faced with, like, this balance that I feel like Western culture has lost. There's so many people around us that eat meat like three to four times a day, if not more than that. And it's mm. like, there's no thought about where it comes from. No thought that it's an animal or that it's a life, no thought about the pack chain and what that means and like the plastics and the feed and the land, right? I'm also mm. very passionate about horses and wild horses specifically are very, very impacted by agricultural land. Because that's what the BLM is, right? They round up the mm. Mustangs to make more room for grazing. And, like, as I watched the women to prep, it's something that I really loved, is because something I get quite commonly is like, oh, you're so lucky to have time to cook. And mm. I've always like been like, okay, first, like, check yourself. I can get really feisty. And I was <laughs> like, don't snap back. Don't snap back. Right. But, like, and then, like, You know, well, I'm privileged to have the ability, yes, to cook. I have full-time job and then some, but like, I also don't have the option because of my mast cell. Like I can't Mm. eat out. It's not an option for me unless I want to go into anaphylaxis. I have to cook for myself. I think we forget like food is like a necessity on the list of like human needs. (laughs) Most people, it's like when they don't have convenience or they can't afford convenience, It's part of their day. There are women that wake up with the dawn, go get water, bring it back, boil it, start crunching the spices, start making the rice, start grinding the masa, and like, then go work in the fields, come back, finish it, the children help. It's like all kind of part Mm. of every day. I think the real privilege that we ignore is convenience. If you didn't have McDonald's or Jack in the Box or Taco Bell, you would have to go home and cook because you can't just not eat. I talked to a lot of women there, a lot of men too, about that. And like they always find it really funny because there is obviously convenience in Kenya. There's convenience everywhere. There's chips. There's all different things that have been brought there. I wrote journal after journal when I was there just kind of like witnessing the food. I loved watching people make the food. Mm. I loved the, the community about it. Like I loved that it was like multiple women and like children all involved, all had a job. And it was just like this time of like being really thankful for the nourishment that was there. Like no matter what it was, like the most simple food.
1: Something you said right there really struck a chord in me, which is around, it's more important then what ends up on your plate itself is your relationship with the food and with the land. And here in the West, we've kind of outsourced that relationship to everything that goes on in the supply chain up until you get your food in a plastic packaging. And then that's kind of your relationship with it. There's so much opportunity to kind of peel back the layers and explore, you know, how did that thing get into the package and and going back upstream. I do want to ask you about Macelle, so your relationship with food and the kitchen kind of shifted or you were forced to shift a lot over the past (laughs) few years. (laughs) Can you share a bit about what Macelle is, how it Mm -hmm. affected you and how you kind of made your way back into cooking?
0: Definitely. So mast cell activation is a disorder of the mast cells. And so we all have mast cells that basically are an alert. It's like an alarm system for the body. So if like you brush against poison oak and then you get the rash reaction, that's your mast cell saying like, Hey, you touched poison. Mm -hmm. My mast cells are really overactive. So they basically see everything as a threat. Mm -hmm. So food becomes a threat nature can become a threat Um, Mm. scents fragrances kind of everything they think I was born with it it's a relatively new diagnosis because before there was only this mast cell cancer and the mast cell cancer is when the mast cells themselves are deformed so Mm. it's different like they can have similar symptoms but the mast cell activation you do not have like any form of deformities in your mast cells they're just an abundance of them And it's only, I think, like 11 or 12 years old, this diagnosis and like finding it. So they think I actually had it as a baby, but that it was Mm. like undetected and probably not as severe. And then I went through a really big stage of grief because I lost my best friend to cancer. She died of gastric cancer and Mm. they basically think, and it's funny, Western doctors and homeopathic and holistic nature, like they all kind of agree that they think that like the period of grief kind of like sent me into a really big spiral where the mast cell got really prevalent and just took over my body. I first started noticing, like I couldn't swallow, like I was having a really hard time Mm. swallowing food. And so I went through like the whole thing of getting tested for dephasia. They were like, do you have a mess? Do you have like, I mean, every kind of testing you can Mm. think of happened. And that was like a year. By the time that whole year had ended, like I was super thin, in a really bad way. I was on a fully liquid diet. I couldn't actually eat any solid foods. And I was getting these rashes on my chest, like really severe ones that hurt. And then I started Mm. getting like these flat I don't know what you'd call them. They were kind of like urticaria, but like a flat version that were just like red, like almost like lesions, like all over my abdomen. And oh, man. I finally found a doctor and allergist in Beverly Hills who is the only one in California that can diagnose myself. cell. And I got an appointment with him. And I love him, but he, and even if he heard this, he would know. But he first like completely ignored me because when I went in, I was not currently having symptoms because I was not eating. (laughs) And then I had pictures, though. So I had pictures of like the rashes on my face and my ears. I had the pictures of my abdomen, my chest, and I showed him and he was like, oh, okay. I then went through a lot of testing to rule out more things like lupus and all the different kind of autoimmune issues and then he did the test for mast cell and it came back like very clearly mast cell and when that happened like i remember being in the room and just feeling like terrified but like also like a deep sense of relief to Mm -hmm. have like a name and an understanding of what was going on in my body and then it took me another year to actually do what he said which was to take children's zyrtec and I was so, like, deep in the holistic world that, like, the idea of mm-hmm. taking a drug every day sent me in the spiral of, like, no, I have to find a holistic yeah. way to do it. I can't do this. And then finally, I reached a point where I really wanted to live. Like, at that point in my life, like, I was barely functioning. I wasn't in the kitchen. I was allergic to the sun. I couldn't go outside during the day. I was not living. I was like, just constantly trying to survive the day. So I started with like 0.5 milliliters of children's dye free, sugar free, everything free Zyrtec (laughs) and even that amount, like my rash started to go down. And then I got up to five mil, which is what I'm still on today. So I take five mil like once or twice a day, depending on what I'm around. Plus I take quercetin, which is a natural supplement. And it's funny, it's used for COVID right now. Like Western doctors are literally giving people quercetin, which is like wild to me. But like I've used it because there is a Western doctor who actually is the one that founded the diagnosis of mast who recommended it. I take about Two to three thousand milligrams of that a day, and I am able to exist in the world, which is amazing. And I've added like a lot of new seafoods. I'm like up to twenty six seafoods now, which is like huge. I only had two like three years ago.
1: Oh my god! So what it's, were the like, two? A huge
0: jump. The two were wild blueberries and zucchini. Oh my gosh!
1: <laughs> so you were on a blueberry <laughs> and zucchini diet?
0: Yes. Oh like it was very minimal.
1: Wow. Um, and those are minimal. also very specific and, foods.
0: Yes. And it's funny, while blueberries <laughs> and zucchini are kind of like the strange crossover foods between mast cell patients. Most mm-hmm. mast cell patients do not share safe foods, like we're all very, very different in like what we can have, but those two seem to be very common to be safe. They're both low histamine and they both contain natural mm. quercetin which could be part of oh, it. interesting. Apples have quercetin, grapes have quercetin, and sunflower seeds and butter have quercetin. I had started mm-hmm. being back in the kitchen in the depth of my illness. I really only went four months where I didn't go in at all because I was just very frustrated. And then I decided that it was like, cooking is how I show love. And I was like, I've mm-hmm. got to figure out a way to do this in some capacity. And it was... Hard. I mean, there was a lot of screaming. There was a lot of crying. There was like a lot of frustration Mm. in coming back. And I think it was really time. The more time that went by and the more foods that my taste, my palate forgot, the stronger my other senses became. So as time went on, it was like, at first, like smelling salt was like so hard. I would sit there and be like, I don't know how I'm supposed to smell salt. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, how am I ever Mm going to do this? Now, like, literally we can be out at a restaurant and I'm like, oh my God, how much soup is in that salt? Like, I can like smell it (laughs) without even like bringing it near me. It's like that sense has heightened so incredibly. Listening, feeling, I feel like feeling dough. I have started to do it in a really new way. I really pay attention to like all the little things and it's still can be frustrating especially when i'm creating new recipes i tend to like to have someone in the kitchen with me that has a nice palette i have certain people in my life that are so beautiful but they don't have a palette for their life they wouldn't know they're just like everything's great like everything is good <laughs> like, so someone who's you deserting. need a
1: seasoned palate.
0: yeah yeah someone who's going to be very like specific right about like ooh, this is a little more bitter we need a little sugar to balance that out or we need a little more salt like Someone who can really like collaborate with me in that because I can't taste it. But it has become a little bit like second nature. Like I'm pretty confident in the ways I do cook the dishes I know. And as I'm creating, as long as I have someone with me, I can feel confident. I do create alone a lot. And it's Mm. kind of just like a shot in the dark, to be honest. I'm like, this should work. We'll see. And then I usually give it to someone and I'm like, tell me what you think. Could be horrible. Really sorry if it is, (laughs) but it has definitely been like a journey, but one that I'm really appreciative for. I don't like to like silver line the hard parts because they definitely exist. But in my opinion, it's made me a much stronger chef and one that really appreciates all the layers in cooking and creating and not just taste. We eat with our eyes and our nose first and like Mm -hmm. really focusing in on making food beautiful and making sure the aromas are just as magnificent as the taste and like Mm -hmm. really layering flavor. Massol is really what taught me that because like it took away the taste, which I don't think I would have ever thought of that on my own to just be like, oh, I'm going to be a chef that doesn't taste food. Like, no, like (laughs) that wasn't wasn't Mm -hmm. something that I ever think would have crossed my mind without this diagnosis. I'm just really happy that it led me down this path because it also did give me a really deep appreciation for how much I love creating food for people and like not professionally anymore. I did walk away from that because that was hard, like emotionally to be doing that every single day. So I just, I do it for friends, I do it for family. The one thing that I will cave for professionally (laughs) is like when someone wants a birthday cake, I'm like, okay, You get birthday cakes.
1: (laughs) Best kind of baking. Oh my gosh. You're like Beethoven of the kitchen. Or like Helen Keller. (laughs) Like learning to use your other senses to create. I've been watching a lot of Great British Bake Off. And Peter from the 2020 season, he likes to listen to his baking. Apparently, if it's still cooking, you'll hear the bubbles. I thought that was so cute. It's true. I love that. Peter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Young Peter.
0: It's so do you watch Bake I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's medicine. That show is medicine. <laughs> it,
1: it truly is. Yeah. So Olfactory, your new cookbook. Mm. I'm so excited for the world to receive this gift. I thought we could walk through some of your favorite and most personal recipes from the book
0: yeah i will start with the blue tortillas because i feel like tortillas and masa in general are like the cornerstone of cooking for me it's one of the first things i made as a child my grandma was a phenomenal cook is a phenomenal cook she's gonna you you are a phenomenal cook um she's like was i was <laughs> still here cooking <laughs> but when i was young i like looked to her right for like everything and i feel like she was my first teacher in all things cooking and Masa is just like the first thing I feel like as a Mexican child that you get given, (laughs) like that is your initiation into the Out of the
1: womb. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Get in the masa bowl, like get there. (laughs) So it's like a visceral memory of like my hands in it and like squeezing the lime and like the water and like mixing it together. And like, I remember like watching her make tortillas and it was so, so much ease. And I remember trying and my little hands would just not, you know, and I'd be like, How do you do this? (laughs) Like, years go by, and like, I still have no nothing on her, like, at all. But like, I can do a decent tortilla now. But the blue corn tortilla recipe in olfactory is. I think I love that people in general often think tortillas are beyond them. They think like it's like this very hard thing, and like. It is. Like the actual shaping is tough, but if you have a tortilla press, you're fine, right? Like it will do it all for you. I have a tortilla press. I use it a lot when I don't feel like screaming at myself as I make them. But the actual creation of a corn tortilla and a blue corn tortilla specifically is so simple. It's so minimal in ingredients. It's so much based in like how you handle the masa dough. And once you make them once, you kind of realize it was all in your head. That this was like unattainable. It's like bread making mm, where it yeah. seems really unattainable. And then once you do it, you're like, why was I so afraid of this? Like this is so,
1: like this that's is it. so doable.
0: <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. I think that recipe just for me is just steeped in like not only my story, but like generations. And I feel like corn in general is just such a generational food. I grew up with heirloom corn. The bright yellow corn we see in stores like, is not something I was used to. I really would love to see heirloom corn celebrated, and I think that's why I put this recipe in the book, is to really encourage people to support farmers that are producing heirloom corn and heirloom masa and helping bring that back. Because corn is a very beautiful crop and it's a staple crop for all, like honestly, so many different cultures. Mm -hmm. I think just really getting back to something that simple of like basically like, for lack of better words, like rewilding corn and like Mm. bringing it back to what it once was. That's the story of that. Um, the jackfruit carnitas is just good. I don't really have a story. The story is it's delicious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, just make it, it's really, y'all.
0: <laughs> just make it. It's amazing. Obviously, I grew up with carnitas with meat. But my grandma actually made it when I was little for me with hearts of palm, because I would never eat the meat. So mm. even though this is not hearts of palm, you can do it with hearts of palm. Totally recommend playing with my book. That's the number one thing I always say And the whole page was like, feel free to change anything you want. Like that's the whole point of it is to play. But yeah, she used to do hearts of palm, she would shred it and make carnitas. And then I started using jackfruit, but it's crazy how much like pork and meat it tastes like it. it just it's bizarre jackfruit's magical the seeded gluten
1: <laughs> i love how you put i oh, want yeah. to know what's the secret I... to making bomb gluten-free bread <laughs> oh, yes so i i went gluten-free fully three years ago and as you mentioned earlier there's so many dry gluten-free baked goods out there tried yes. all the breads but i have found this one brand at whole foods it's a frozen loaf you can get I think the brand is Mm -hmm. called green light and they're just Mm -hmm. uh, like, it tastes like a real baguette. I'm like, wow, there must be some secret.
0: There is. (laughs) I think there's lots of secrets. (laughs) It obviously depends on like what kind of bread you're going for. A lot of the gluten-free baking, it's about balancing the density with lightness because no matter what, Mm -hmm. with gluten-free you're definitely going to have density because the grains that you use are just more dense than like a white flour. But there is a way to balance that. So it's almost like you're going to have like that heavy, dense outer loaf, but then getting that inside to feel light, to feel like a more traditional bread. I still have not perfected not making tiny bread. Like that loaf is still pretty small. That's like the funny thing about (laughs) gluten-free bread that I laugh at all the time is like... Why are you so tiny? Like, it's, <laughs> and it's a beautiful, it's one of my favorite loaves to make. It's just beautiful to look at, like, because of all the seeds, it does have that lightness to it. I honestly think with bread, the biggest thing I always tell people is patience and love the way you need mm. the dough actually does matter the way that you wait matters like if you're impatient if you don't allow the yeast to bloom if like there's anything Mm. like that that's happening it's not going to be the same temperature making sure your house is not too hot not too cold that does affect bread that affects all things it affects cupcakes it affects kind of all of it baking in the summer is my least favorite thing in the world because when it's like 100 Mm. degrees here like nothing comes out right unless i have the air conditioning like pumping (laughs) so is just being really present when you're making bread. Bread and me have like a very challenged relationship because I was always allergic to gluten and didn't even like know it until I was a teenager. And I loved bread though. Like bread was like a food group. <laughs> I was like, I could just eat bread, <laughs> right? Like dipped in olive oil and balsamic, I was like a happy girl. And like, when I realized that I was gone, I was like, oh, oh, okay. All the joy like, in sure. my life. Right? Like I was like, what? Like, <laughs> What do you mean? I think just allowing myself to make bread, that's like, is it the same as a traditional loaf? No. It's kind of like carnitas, right? Like, I would never tell someone that it's exactly like the meat carnitas. Is it akin to it? It is. Like, I think the flavor and the texture and like, yes, I fully stand behind that with gluten-free bread, like the fact that you can make flowers from so many different seeds and grains, I think it's amazing. And just the act of making bread is meditative. It connects mm. you to yourself. It connects you to nature. There's really no better feeling than making a really
1: bomb loaf of bread and being like, hey, I made this Yes, you. And <laughs> I the secret is not telling them it's gluten-free till after. And then they're like, oh, exactly. wow.
0: <laughs> exactly. Let's see. The three sisters chili, um, um yes. and the pesto. So the three sisters chili for me is my whole childhood because we used to grow the three sisters, corn, beans. Oh my God. Why am I like blanking right now? <laughs> corn, beans, <laughs>
1: winter squash, squash oh. um,
0: yes. So, and like we did it in summer as well. So we did like zucchini or yellow squash mm-hmm. and then the corn, um, and then the beans like runner beans, anything like that, because it's a way of pest control as well. It's kind of like how with tomatoes, Mm. you plant basil in between the rows, and that way the pests go for the basil and not Ah. the tomato plant. And so this chili is like, it was funny because I never had a recipe for it. Like, I just made it, right? And so like when I was like, oh, I should get a (laughs) recipe, there was questions asked in the family just to like try to remember what specifically was used, which was really special. I really loved making that. And then the pesto was like the whole Italian introduction into my family my grandma was like very in denial about her mexican heritage even though it was like a huge part of our life she grew up in a time where to be mexican was like not a safe thing so she really Mm. like embraced the caucasian part of her and like the caucasian person she married at christmas like we had tamales there was always tamales but then there was also like lasagna But (laughs) pesto was a huge one because we always had basil, like an abundance of basil and cilantro. Making pesto was like one of my favorite things to do, like as a little girl. Mm. I loved like going to the basil. Oh my God. It's like for the soul, making pesto is just like a balm. Like when you're sad Mm. or when like things feel really heavy, like just smelling it as you're like grinding it is just like so satisfying and again it's really Mm. simple I feel like people have like this very like oh it has to be basil it has to be pine nuts it has to be this and I'm like pesto can be whatever the hell you want it to be it can be like cilantro walnuts and parsley it can be arugula Mm. it can be chart. it can be nettle like nettle pesto is insanely delicious and like yes the one I share is like It has basil. It has walnuts. I actually really prefer walnuts to pine nuts. I love the oil that they give off. And then I just love lemon. So there's a lot of lemon zest, a lot of lemon juice, and then obviously fresh garlic. And I love bringing that kind of simplicity into people's life because, again, pesto, like at a restaurant, I feel like people like go to restaurants to eat things like pesto. And I'm like, it takes five seconds in your own home. Let's do this. Let's get this in your house and like get this in your weekly menu and that way it's like you can feel special and like you're eating out any day of the week and connect you again to that product because pesto how good it is is based on how good your basil is that's the star ingredient if you're using parsley or cilantro it's the same thing so it's like bringing that all together and showing people like how magnificent that is when you have extraordinary produce
1: yeah you start with good stuff (laughs) you well, chances are you'll end up with good stuff <laughs> if yes, you don't muck exactly. it up. Exactly. <laughs> and tell us about the lemon burst bars. I don't know if this is a particularly mm. personal recipe for you, yeah. but whenever I picture you, I picture you with the, <laughs> the lemon bars.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so cute. I feel like Jen, who was my photographer for the book, Jen was the main photographer. Live and I were like her little stand-ins, and then Live and I and her all like styled and everything. It was like a group effort, and. Jen oh. loves lemon everything. Like, it's the way to her heart. And so when I made these lemon bars, I feel like she got really extra with it. And she was like, dance with it. Come on. Like, I want you to like, do... like, it was just like a whole production for these lemon bars. And I was like, wow, these lemon bars are getting like some special attention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think they're one of those things that people assume cannot be vegan because usually they're made with such a large amount of eggs.
1: Mm. So it's really
0: fun to have that in there. Because it is like this thing that is so nostalgic for a lot of people. And I loved having it here in Ojai because I have a lemon tree and Meyer lemons are like a crop that's very Ojai. All of my desserts, I really try to encourage people to like not worry about sugar or about anything and just like enjoy the indulgence and enjoy being really present with the food and like being like, damn, that's really good. And I'm going to like let my body have that. You know, and I didn't share a lot of desserts because I do still sell desserts. <laughs> so that was like why I like, didn't share like all of the recipes because then like no one would can't give me, away like, the ever. secrets.
1: I would love to host a big dinner one day for all the farm to futurists and mm. have you bake and cook for us if you would like to. Oh my to. God.
0: Yes. A hundred percent. I would love that. It would be such or we a can all gift can to meet together <gasps>
1: Yes, yeah, like a yeah. big,
0: beautiful table. I thought it'd be amazing.
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Manifesting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: Jane. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been such a treat. Do you want to tell listeners where they can find you and where they can grab their own copy of Olfactory? Of course.
0: So you can find me at michellenicolegerard.com and on Instagram, it's michelle.nicole.gerard. I always forget the dots and olfactory currently is sold out, but it will be back. And I'm actually creating an ebook version that way. If people just want to grab it and have it on their iPads in the kitchen, they can do so.
1: Thank you so much, Michelle. (laughs) And that's a wrap.
2: Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.